Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink podcast, where we navigate our political and cultural divides with a chaser of civility. We invite you to grab your favorite beverage and join us as we explore our differences and build bridges across our divisions. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast with my co-host, David Bernstein. This is part two of Talking DEI with our friend, Carlos Hoyt. Carlos, it is good to see you again. I'm excited for part two of our conversations. We left so much on the table. When we talked last, you mentioned that you might actually bring a hot chocolate to the table (laughs) for your drink this time. I'm just, I remember that. Did you bring a hot chocolate? You have a very good memory, better than <laughs> With H2O by boring water. So I saw God letting you down. What did you, you bring, my friend? Well, I want you to know, thinking of you, I didn't have hot chocolate, but I had chocolate rooibos tea. And that's as close mm-hmm. as I could get. And it's in a New Jersey cup, which is as close as I could get to where you are in my Starbucks collection. So. There well, you go. Great, great evidence of your thoughtfulness, which is one of the reasons I'm happy to keep talking about the two of you. So thank you. David, what about you? I know you went and grabbed a drink, so. Uh, yeah, I went and got a, a a Diet Coke and I put a little bit of Fireball whiskey in it. The, the traditional way is actually reverse. You have Fireball whiskey and you put a little splash of Coke in it. But <laughs> I'd be incoherent, so I'm glad I did it this way. It's delicious. Oh, speaking mm-hmm. of Carlos, uh, of drinking, you'll be happy to know that um i you know remember we were talking a little bit about like being mindful about drinking yeah in our last podcast yes i i have i have up my game there how so just being mindful really just being mindful like not putting any necessarily um strict guidelines but just being mindful of like when you know when i'm drinking you know who i'm drinking with and it not just being something that becomes habit forming. How's that? Well, first of all, grandmotherly, it feels great to me. <laughs> and certainly as someone who has an inclination, it feels great to me too. But as I hope I said um, during our first conversation, I would never want you or anybody watching or listening or folks in my family or my friends to think that my particular stance on this is sort of some judgment or prescription. Not I think at you know, all. any kind of mindfulness about anything we do can be great. Yeah. But thank no, you for I, doing that. That's nice. I didn't I didn't take your your our discussion as judgment at all. But it just reminds me of being mind like you remind me of being mindful and and I'm working on it <laughs> with your help. <laughs> um so we we left off our last conversation. We talked just kind of about where we sat in this DEI discussion. You provided us with some alternative uh, not alternative, some some new reading that you have created around DEI, what's important to you. We but both David and I read that. You have what was nice, <clears throat> excuse me, what was nice around what you did, I thought, was a lot of times we are ta- we not even using the same definitions yeah. for language. Yeah. And so for you to start out, even if, and I, I, want, I think David and I want to talk to you about some of your definitions, but the nice thing is, is that no one, we, we enter the room at least knowing where you're at with certain definitions. And I think that that is something that is missing in a lot of the conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a very um, sort of specific and almost technical illustration of how we can talk past each other, you know, Um, and sometimes in collision with one another. And I think taking time to at least share, what do you mean by this or that, needn't lead us into a fight. It can lead us into a synthesis, right? Yes. So I, I um, spent, uh, so I really appreciated the document, by the way. And I think I commented to Jennifer after our last podcast is that I think I disagree with Carlos on some key points. But if he were the, the if he were setting the template for DEI everywhere, I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. Um, so, um, you know, which is to raise concerns about DEI and how it's often taught. And, um, but I do, I will say that, um, even the, even still, I, I do have some 
differences there. And I don't know if it's a good idea to start there because I, I appreciate that, um, that you talk about the dilemmas of, let's say worldview or viewpoint diversity and, um, and wanting to teach kids about systemic racism and, and, and society. And, um, I, I thought maybe I do you want to do we want to go right in, John, or do you want me to go right into this? Because I, I do have some I do have some thoughts and where I think and because we've already had a conversation, I feel like that might be a good place to start. It looks, Carlos, you look like you have something to say. So I do, but I don't want to interrupt. Um, you know, David's wish to ask you something where to start. Nope, I'm, I'm good with where you guys. Why don't you? respond and then we'll and then we'll make that decision together <laughs> that's our common ground right. that's wonderful and that's collaborative so one of my motivations um to stay in in communion with the two of you is and it may be a little bit lofty but it's actually a hope to continue to model because i i hope we accomplish this the first time how mm -hmm. folks who may you know, some differences around some things can actually um, live and exemplify, at least in an effort to find common ground. I say all that because, you know, David, you were good enough to say, you know, I think, you know, I have some disagreements. And then you said something very nice after that. And I would emphasize the I think part, because that for me leaves some space for maybe not. Maybe we'll find out that they're not disagreements, although a disagreement is sure. fine. And then you wondered out loud, is it best to start with that or maybe to start with some of the things that are commonalities? I think a lot about the way all sorts of discourses run these days and what we're showing to the world and especially kids. So if I had a request, you know, not to be stilted about it, but it would be to probably start with some things that actually felt like some good common ground. We don't have to start there, but I hope we don't overlook that that anybody who's sure. watching doesn't think we're only focusing on those things that are problematic and maybe serve as divisions between the two of us. I hope that when we get to those, they'll be actually launching paths to find common ground. But I think it's always useful to talk about the stuff that we might agree upon too, especially if it's surprising agreements. So that's all I wanted to say about where sure. to stand. Sure. I had a debate with somebody I respect greatly, like a really a public debate last week and in a in a public setting where there were people watching and uh the, the interesting thing was by the time we were done we realized that we didn't actually disagree on the key point um but um and maybe that will be here too i, I if i had to say that what do we have in common i i think we want to live in a society that respects diverse ways of being that we want to live in a society where people can talk to each other and understand each other. We want to uh, live in a society, an American society that lives up to its own highest ideals of freedom and, and liberty and fairness and justice. You know, and I see that in your work throughout. And I think starting there is, is a way of saying we want the same things. And I think, and maybe you'll, you'll, uh, confirm this, but um, we want the same things in a society. Ne neither of us are trying to create a society where people tear each other down, where they, uh, where they try to establish themselves as the sort of exclusive arbiter of the way the world works. And so therefore, we're, we're in a space together where we're trying to work things out. Um, and I actually have a thought experiment at some point I would want to try out with you, maybe even on this Zoom. But those are those are some of the um, those are some of the thoughts that I had about where we start. I think that's wonderful because uh, you know, as I said, in terms of aspirations, I think not only do we have an opportunity to create such a space, I think we have an obligation to um, you know start, try to insert it into what is very much the opposite these days, and I think that's, that's super unfortunate. So, right with all of that, so, I'm happy to jump in anywhere. Thank you. Okay. So you, you had this one, you're a very good writer, by the way. And, and so it's, it's a pleasure to read, read you. And you say, and, and you start actually listing um, some of the concerns that parents might have with DEI. I might add kids might have, they might have a 17 year old who, um, you know, junior in high school who has some of these same concerns. Um, 
But, you know, you say some parents may wonder if DEI practices will introduce their children to ideas and ways of being that they might find contrary to the ways that they want their children to understand and move through life. Um, and um, you, you recognize that that's a challenge. It's, it's not just uh, a manipulative agenda that some bad people bring, but that some parents may genuinely be worried about that. And I think that is already more respectful than some of the discussion, public discussion I see around these issues where people are where where it's assumed that the parents who are involved in this are just trying to perpetuate a very right wing agenda. Um, so um, and then you you continue. It's important to acknowledge that simply being in the company of others and especially we um, especially if we choose to and are fortunate to be in communities that welcome diversity, students are being exposed to diversity of thought, belief and behaviors. And it's important to see that providing information about diversity of thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors that characterize the human species is quite different than trying to influence children to do anything. Um, and I'll, I'm cutting it short a little bit here. And I think, I, I, look, I think it is absolutely true that a our that when our kids go to school, our kids go out of life, uh, out anywhere, any institution, any sphere of life, they're going to be influenced by a multiplicity of views. The question really comes to, up for me is when you say that there's systemic racism in society, and by the way, I, I, don't, I agree with that, um, but there are people who don't, and some of them are well-meaning, thoughtful people. They're not people who are doing it out of malice. They're people who have looked at the issue in a serious way and conclude that it doesn't really exist in modern America. I would dispute that, and I would argue with them, but they're there. Um, but what, what what concerns me is that when when DEI initiatives define exactly what is systemic racism and they impart it not as a theory that can be discussed or debated, but they say there's systemic racism, let's say, in the criminal justice system. So therefore, there must be systemic racism in education. Therefore, there must be systemic racism in health disparities. Therefore, America itself must be, must be systemically racist. And there's a sort of... Um, there's a sort of overgeneralization fallacy, I worry, that often happens in DEI, where where you actually do stifle parents. It's not that you're that kids are just coming up to different beliefs and thoughts and behaviors that are different than the ones that they grew up with. It's that they're being told what the right way to think about these issues actually is, and that's where I think I have a problem. And I think my, even my 17 year old son feels that way. So I know that was a very long winded intro to the question. Oh, I didn't find it long-winded. Um, I found it clear and um, a useful sort of intro or frame for us to, to have a dialogue in. Um, I'm gonna, I think we talked about this a little bit uh, in the first one. If not, like, here it is and you, or here it is again. I'm reluctant to appear to be a defender of or a proponent of a thing called DEI. Um, mm -hmm. I, however, want to be an advocate of trying to be as specific about what we're talking about and who we're talking about when we're talking about the thing in question as possible. And I analogize it, and I think I did this last time, to, you know, the very fraught discourse about the police, right? You know, that over the past couple of years or so, you know, has sort of crescendoed with like defund it, burn it down. Right? It's just not a good thing. We need to do away with it, which I don't agree with. Just to be clear about that, that's not where I'm going. Um, and I actually think that is a, a type of overgeneralization uh, of the sort you're thinking about, overgeneralizing the problems, um, and actually just bad critical thinking. You know, it just can't be right. the case that all cops are bad, you know, as folks say. And as far as I'm concerned, it can't be the case that we get rid of what should be, whether or not it works out well all the time or not, you know, a means of protecting and serving. Does it always play out that way? You know, has things gone wrong? Will they continue to go wrong? Are they going wrong? Yes, absolutely. So now I'm going to keep sort of referring back to that if I need to, as a way to think about this discussion about this thing we're calling DEI. Are there some bad practices out there? Some things that actually make me wince when I read about them in the paper? Yeah, absolutely. And if your 17-year-old son is experiencing some of that stuff, 
then, and you should hear my kids, so they'll tell you how I felt about when they were in school saying like, if it's not good, tell somebody, advocate for yourself. I would empower right. him to say like, not so much that DEI is bad and it should be burned down, but no. is this the best way to go about this? You know, because if it's not, I want him and everybody else to have a voice in that just as you are exercising your voice. So I'm hoping our conversation, you know, throughout, you know, the rest of this hour, will be around that because they're good and they're bad practices. Um, and I'm proud sure. to recognize that some of the things I wrote seem positive to you. So yeah, those parents, you know, who are experiencing a form or forms or examples or instances of attempts to just boiling it down, help kids get along with each other in this complicated world, if that's being gone about in a bad way, it should be called out and it should be fixed. I just hope it doesn't become a conflagration, you know, to say like, let's get rid of the whole thing. Cause that's when I think we get lost. Agreed. Can you, yeah. Carlos, give a little more clarity or share with some, some examples that you've seen of bad practices yes. and how you might do practice. We said we wanted to talk about it in practice. Cause I think, I think you're right. I think, you know, the ideas behind diversity, equity, and inclusion are good. It's, it, where it's been tainted, if you will. I don't know if that's really the right word, but where I think, you know, people have, have the most pushback has been in praxis. And I know talking to you outside of, I believe our recording, you, you have noticed some areas too that you would want to change. And I think in some ways, that's why you're doing what you're doing to put the best practice into DEI. So my question, I, Went all that around that to say, my question is twofold. One, what are you seeing that concerns you? And two, what are you doing differently? Um, yeah, thanks for the invitation to do that. I'm actually gonna to refer to, and now I can share it on screen if that would be helpful or not, but I hope it's not because I'm gonna get a little bit complicated. I'm gonna to refer to a post by one of your fellow board members at the Institute for Liberal Values, Andrew um, Gutman. So Andrew, has a series of posts on the side of his own. And one of them is what is systemic racism, right? And I wish Andrew were here because I just love to talk with people directly. Andrew, if you're listening to this now or after, don't worry, I'm not going after you. I don't tend to be like that. But I think there's some great examples in here that Andrew uses to actually point out some things that aren't great practice. So not only do I wanna point them out, I wanna validate, you know, the people who are pointing them out are sometimes right about that. Having said that, there's things, some things about Andrew's statements that I would like to um, sort of uh, compassionately challenge, but maybe we'll get to that. So Andrew's writing about, you know, what is systemic racism? And he takes, you know, some, some detours, you know, that he thinks sort of will, I think, um, give substance to his um, arguments and perspectives. One of them is, he says, before we tackle, he's talking about systemic racism, I want to first address the definition of racism itself. Here's how racism is defined in the materials created by Pollyanna. Pollyanna was the group that worked at his child's school, um, and he found their work to be very problematic. I don't know the folks at Pollyanna. Um, I mean them no harm. Uh, I don't mean to be um, critical in any sort of negative way. But if Andrew's correct that this is the way they went about some stuff, I would respectfully say uh, to my colleagues in DEI work, I wouldn't do it that way. So Andrew writes, um, the consulting group I briefly criticized in my original letter, Pollyanna, uh, provided Braille's anti-racism training for parents. Here's their definition of racism, prejudice, bias, and blind spots you may have within yourself as an individual. And then, you know, in my view, that makes it very easy for Andrew to go to town on that definition because it's just not a good definition. And the folks from Pollyanna, if they were here, might say, hold on, he's taking us out of context. That's not what we meant. But let's just take this at face value. That's not a good definition of um, racism. Racism isn't even in there, right? So if that's a practice being used by folks who say they're doing DEI, I would say, don't do that, please. You know, that's not gonna make us look good and it's not gonna help children or anybody else. Um, Onto systemic racism, the systemic distribution of resources, power, and opportunity in our society to benefit to the benefit of people who are white and the exclusion of people of power of color. All right. So then he goes to town on that one again, provided by Pollyanna. Now, what I would love to discuss with 
Andrew or folks like him is that it's perfectly okay for me to highlight instances of bad practice, but not to then say that characterizes everything that we're talking about. Again, referring to police work, right? There's some bad actors out there, no doubt about it. We're not going to say then we should burn it all down because of them. So how should we define uh, systemic racism or racism for that matter? And I'm not going to take you to something that I just put um, in the document that you read. So this to me would be a good way to do it. Uh, and there's a section that I put in there called systemic social bias. Right? And there's a reason why I termed it that and not just systemic racism, because social bias happens. Like we just know that's the case. It's always going to be the case because people have social identities. You know, they hang a whole lot on those social identities. And, you know, it's very easy for us to put each other in categories and then to put ourselves in hierarchies. So suddenly it's us and them. Like, we know this. This happens in psychology. It's what human beings do. So social bias is something that we're all vulnerable to be on the wrong side of. And sadly, you know, vulnerable to commit against others. So systemic simply means an arrangement that tends to result in intended or unintended consequences. Right? There are all sorts of systems. You have a system for the way you run your podcast. You have a system for the people who you afford to be on it. We have systems for admissions to schools. There are all sorts of systems. There are systems in, the, in nature. You know, ecology is a system. It's not one that any human being, being built, but it has predictable outcomes. Right? So that's all a system is. If we all agree on that, then I think we all should agree, I hope, that of course there have been instances of social bias, uh, systemic social bias in this country, and there still are, sadly. Some of them are deliberate or were deliberate. Some of them just have incidental consequences because of the way they've been. One example that I give, and I can give more if you'd like me to, is Jim Crow laws. Like we know that was a deliberate system to oppress people, right? Luckily, Jim Crow laws don't exist anymore, right, officially. But let's compare that to something like legacy preferences in colleges, right? We know that legacy preferences are there for a reason, you know, to um, give colleges a chance to keep families, you know, that have been good for them. Same thing with athletes, you know, who are valuable, et cetera. But those seats, you know, tend to go to people, you know, who are parts of group that correlate with privilege, which means that there are going to be less seats for other folks who've never had a chance to get in that stream in the first place. Is that deliberate? I don't think it is necessarily, but it does have the effect, right, of excluding people, and it has the effect of doing so systematically. The, um, what was on just the other day? I don't know if it was the Oscars or what, but there was some show on the other day. And, you know, I was thinking about who gets to show up in the media these days. And I think a lot about, I don't know, I don't know what to call them sometimes, uh, American Indians, Native Americans. I just want to say whatever they want to be called because it's a confusing thing. Why don't we see more folks who identify that way in the media, in athletics, all over the place? Is it because somebody is plotting against them systemically to keep them out? I would say no, it's actually a byproduct of the inertia of custom about who we tend to look to when we want to put them in these uh, funnels of access to things like politics, Hollywood, television, et cetera, et cetera. And as a result of that, you know, folks who identify as Native American or American Indian or whatever um, they want to call themselves first people have been systematically erased, you know, from certain corners of society. Those are all examples of systemic bias. It happens. I think a thoughtful understanding of that should lead folks to say, of course, there's then systemic racism. There's systemic gender bias. There's systemic oppression against certain worldviews. Right? Some of it is deliberate, probably most of it is not. But whether it's deliberate or not shouldn't be where we stop or start. It should be, does it exist? And if it does, let's do something about it. David, you and I talked a little bit um, last time about your son, you know, and about you even, you know, in terms of learning styles and how the system of schooling, you know, doesn't necessarily take care of everybody. Not because schools are looking to oppress anybody, but because of the way it's engineered, it can have some unintended consequences of making life hard for some people. So if we can agree on all that, then I think it should be okay to say, if it's ever the case that black identified or black racialized people are getting the short end of the stick because of some systems, we should probably try to pay attention to that and look at it. Can we agree on that? I think we do agree on that. I, I do believe that there is systemic bias. I do believe that there's 
examples of systemic racism. But I think it it gets complicated, and this is where I get worried. I have I have a piece that I'm writing right now in search of systemic racism, and I've been writing it for actually for months because I'm I've been finding examples in the literature or on Twitter or wherever I find them, people defining systemic racism, and I and I've come up with. And I'm not going through them now, but seven different ways that people use the term systemic racism to mean what I consider very different things. And I worry that sometimes there's a bit of a bait and switch. And I'm not saying you're doing that. I'm I'm saying that it, it, it's done when a school system, like my son's school system in their anti-racist audit, says that we're going to teach students to recognize and resist systems of oppression. And and. Um, it's one thing for you to say that there is a something called systemic bias and systemic racism. But then once you get into the details, what I'm worried is that educators will then tell students precisely what those things are, and that will foreclose conversation. So let me give you an example of how this can work. Yes, you've given one definition of systemic racism and bias, and I thought did a very good job. But there's this, also this concept of whiteness, for example. And and it's um, the idea of whiteness is that there are white-dominated cultures that favor white cultural practices or white-associated cultural practices, and that those cultural practices are biased toward certain people um, and favorable towards other people. Um, and then very often people will use it to say even the issue, idea of promptness, for example, is a white associated trait. And therefore, by insisting on promptness at the workforce uh, place or on a podcast or wherever we do is an example of systemic bias against cultures or people who don't practice promptness. Um, now, the, this idea of that there are dominant cultures is, I mean, it, literally every system has a dominant culture, in my view. Like every country has a dominant culture, whether that culture is in Ghana or Mexico or wherever else, or the United States. There's a dominant cultural framework, and there are probably multiplicity of cultural, there are multiplicity of cultural frameworks within each of those dominant frameworks. And cultures have the right to exist. I mean, in other words, it's okay for a country that's founded, uh, that has a culture to say, look, we, we value, you know, we, te we value certain kinds of uh, behavior. We don't walk naked in the streets, for example. Um, that's a cultural practice that, uh, that many cultures have in common. Um, and, and my, I'm saying that because I think that that definition of systemic racism, this idea that we must, we must dismantle sy systems of whiteness, often mean, it's often sort of nihilistic in that it, it suggests that, that the entire culture that supports, um, you know, th that this country was built on is inherently problematic. And again, I'm not saying that that's what you're arguing. I'm saying that because we don't have clear definitions and because this ideology is all over the map and people are insisting on all kinds of things, um, that once you, once it becomes an epistemic problem. You start to say there's there's systems of bias, and then all of a sudden, any system of bias that you claim is a system of bias now must be understood that way by everybody. And I think, and I don't mean you. I mean this, by the diversity trainer or whoever's leading it. Um, and that's where I worry that this this framework is not nearly well fleshed out enough to do the, to undertake this project now, because the people who are doing it are not you. Um. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I know that was passionate, but I, 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 I never worry about that. I, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's real. Um, and it's not antagonistic, which I think is also wonderful. And it's not adversarial, right? It can be like debate oriented. And I think that's cool. And I want to point out without. That's how I learned, by the way. I'm sorry. That's just how my brain functions. I'll get the best out of you too. I hope. I, I think, you know, I try to be good at saying if I think something didn't feel good or like, can we just talk about that? So no worries about mm -hmm. that, but I appreciate your, your sensitivity mm -hmm. around that. So it, we all know, right, that this thing we call DEI, like, is a baby, right? It just got born yesterday, right? And it's just getting its legs and it has a lot to do, right? I think there's a place for it in our society, you know, and it, could be termed other things. You know, we used to use do civics education and all sorts of things. I actually saw, I'll try not to get too distracted. I actually saw an article this week, Times, Post, I don't know what it was, that there are folks going after social emotional learning now, um, mostly as it does or doesn't seem to interact with the racism thing and then CRT is just behind that, et cetera. So yeah, it's such a fraught time, you know, for this fledgling field discipline to be trying to do the work it does. And you are quite right. 
It doesn't help, you know, when it gets generalized and morphs in all sorts of ways that just aren't accurate and helpful. Here's what I think happens and what I think would be helpful to not have in order to do instead. We should be teaching kids um, that bias happens. It happens in your brain. It happens to you. It happens in our classroom. Like, and we need to guard against it if we can, right? Because it's just part of the way our human brain works that it can trip into things that we wish it didn't. So how do we understand that, stay on guard for it? And what are the, like, the ways in which we should look at it? Let's look at it psychologically, right? And there's some human universal stuff there. Let's look at it sociologically. How does it play out in whatever we think or some good data around that? Let's look at it anthropologically. How does it vary from culture to culture? Are there some places that have done it differently or better than ours? Like none of that is prescriptive, right? That's engaging kids in being good scholars. And that is like one of my favorite things to do, right? I refer yes. to kids as scholars, like we're here to study. Right. And after you've studied, you'd be in the you'll be in the best position to synthesize your own bearing on the topic. Right. Right. But as long as you get right, as long as you get I'm sorry to interrupt. As long as once you get into specific examples, somebody can say, I don't agree that that example fits the model. Yes, yeah, so now if, and I'm gonna say we also need um, a generally agreed upon way for scrut to scrutinize that too. So Carlos Jr. says, I don't agree that that example gets us there. I want David the teacher or Jen the teacher to be able to invite Carlos to say, well, first to say, excellent, so glad you raised your hand. We've talked about how to scrutinize examples. Tell me, like, take it apart from me. Don't just say that you disagree with it, though. That's not right. No, 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 of course. I want the debate. <laughs> I, I, want, I, want, I want my kid to be able to say, well, you say that there's disparities in the provision of, of health, and I see that, but when you actually read the study and you control for income, it appears that those aren't based on race, that they're actually based on income and class. Now, that he could be wrong. My kid could be wrong about that. But I want that kid, to, and, and I, even better, I want the teacher to find the article that says that that's the case. So that the kid is reading both examples. In other words, they're reading the they're reading the assertion that there's systemic racism and the provision of healthcare, and they're reading the counterexample. So our kids can come to an informed conclusion about that topic. Yes, and I hope that they're also practicing a resistance to what is another human habit, and that is dichotomous thinking. Because, and obviously, we're just sort of making stuff up here, but it could be both, right? It could be that it can be a high correlation between place and resources and bias and that race sometimes gets used as a proxy for that because there's some correlations there too. I think that's unfortunate, it starts to get fuzzy, but I think it's so important to like keep that open mind and keep doing the work. And people like use numbers however they want to, we know that. So what are the best studies? And at the end of the day, going back to this work that you are doing, David, and I'm glad to hear about it, and really trying to look at how are people using this term and giving examples for it, let's come up with the best one. You know, and I, you know, when you get there, I'll be interested to, you know, to see what you come right. up with, because I assume right. you're not just looking to critique all the bad stuff, but to also find a way to, I hope, raise up good examples or create right. it yourself if it's not there. Even, even the whiteness paradigm, which I critiqued just now, I actually believe it can be, it can actually be systemic racism. In other words, if a dominant culture excludes any other cultural expression besides its own, if it's, if it stifles alternative, um, you know, for example, give you a great example of this. If, if a workplace says um, an employee with dreadlocks cannot rise to the highest levels of that corporation because they don't fit the Brooks Brothers image, I think that that, I don't know if I would call it systemic racism, but it is a kind of maybe systemic bias that I think could be could be replaced by something much better and much more humane and much more inclusive. So again, like why I always say, like I feel like there's a there is a kernel of truth buried in the absurdity with some of these ideas, and some of them are, you know, like if you ask me, okay, is it very possible there's systemic racism in certain police departments? And absolutely, are there precincts in Minneapolis police department, like I think the notorious third precinct where Derek Chauvin came from, where there was sort of pervasive racism in that particular precinct, even though they were trying to reform the entire police system. 
I think that that's probably the case. I mean, I'm, I'm inclined to believe that uh, based on the evidence that, that I've seen. So I think that there are examples of it. What I, what I, but, but the, but, you know, I think we need to interrogate them and not treat systemic racism as if it's an all or nothing proposition. And that, and that there are no, and I'll get, and here's another, the, the other related issue, and that there are no other acceptable reasons for disparity. Um, you know, I, I, one of the things that I hear a lot of people saying is, well, if you don't think it's systemic racism, what is it? Are you saying that there's just something wrong with black people? And I, and, and I, and I, and I think that that is not helpful discourse either. I mean, look, I mean, I can look at what's happening in the inner city of Chicago and say, you know, in, in the murder rate and so forth and say, I don't, I don't attribute that all to systemic racism. I think that there's problems in the inner city of Chicago that need to be dealt with as a sort of internal cultural dynamics in those places. Now, that doesn't, that's not saying that there's a problem everywhere where there are a lot of black people. That's just not the case. It's, it's, um, but I can, but I can, I can break it down as Orlando Patterson has done in his various sociological studies and say, there, are, and, and by the way, I, I might also look at Appalachia and say there are problems with, uh, you know, with, with, the cultural functioning of males in particular in these places. Or I can look at opioid infested areas of blue collar America and say there are there are so there are cultural problems or dysfunctions in those places that really need to be addressed and, and aren't explained by systematic bias alone. And I worry that that the systemic bias explanations are trying to crowd out all the other explanations. Well, I think, you know, and again I think we agree on this and I don't mean to be a stickler about how we talk about it, but I think it's important. It sounds like you are rightly asserting that the way some people go about researching, interpreting, talking about this is problematic because it gets in the way of finding some common ground, but you are not um, arguing with the fact that there are instances of places where systemic bias uh, does manifest and it manifests based on racialization. If that's the case, then I hope that our that our major goal is to cut that out. <laughs> Let's find a way to stop that. And sure. the best way to do that is to make sure we're being um, as consistent and clear and rigorous as we can, you know, when data matters and when policies matters, et cetera. But let us not get sidetracked, you know, by talking about the folks who aren't doing the work well from actually doing the work because the work needs to get done. Right? Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I think that that's that's right. Uh, but the work also has is is not just in eliminating our personal biases, our collective biases, but collectively trying to diagnose society's problems in the most accurate way possible, so that collectively we can provide the best solutions. I I I I have to say I despair for the people in inner city Chicago who feel trapped in this horrible cycle. If all they get from society are discussions on where there's systemic racism, because I don't, because then the work that's not being done is society making massive investments in inner city Chicago to, and, and to try to change the kind of, um, you know, patterns there that, that are producing, you know, sometimes I think it's 50 murders in a weekend, um, you know, and, and, and so I worry that we're not, we're, we're, that that this has replaced something much more rigorous at times, not all the time, but at times than, than the kind of social policy that we actually need to lift people up. Well, you know, from, you know, being, having put the time in to sort of look at some of my views on this, that I, you know, completely agree, you know, with what we're saying is we're not attacking, you know, the issue of, of racism properly um, and we don't have time to waste. So yeah, there are other ways we should be going about it. But all of that comes after the agreement that the thing does exist. I yeah. I want to have compassion, but little patience, you know, for folks who are still talking about whether or not it exists. Like, it exists. Like, let's not spend time on that, because after a point, that does seem to be like there's another agenda here, right? Because we're not joining ground to say, let's look at it properly and then fix it. It's just, let's keep talking about whether or not it exists, which never gets us to working on it. Right. right. The best debate I ever had was on this podcast with uh, Charles Love. <laughs> who um who is a you know black conservative thinker a sweet guy smart guy uh, accomplished guy who um where i was asserting that there is systemic racism and providing examples and he was telling me i was out of my mind and um and why i was out of my mind and asked me to 
to prove the point. And so I provided all my best examples of, you know, the criminal justice system and the like. Um, so, you know, I, I guess, am I, do I disagree with you on that? I, I, you know, we, we live with a lot of people in society who don't think there's this thing of systemic racism. Like, you know, we, you know, there, we, we live in a very complicated political environment and I just, you know, I worry, even if, even though I agree that that it comes pretty close to axiomatic that that systemic racism exists in some quarters of society, I, I still I still worry about the backlash that 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 has that that it that we have, to have the conversation at this point about systemic racism in schools and provide kids with alternative ways of thinking about it may be the best we can do without without creating the kind of political backlash that will make it almost impossible to even teach constructively on these issues. Well, and I am glad you mentioned that because the political backlash is certainly strong. And I do actually, you know, see some people saying, gosh, we need to avoid the backlash. Therefore, let's either back down or change what we're doing or stop what we're doing. And I think, you know, that can yield um, truth and important work to some people who are being loud, you know, and being vociferous, perhaps cynically about some of this. We started earlier by you saying that you appreciated that I do appreciate that parents have a right to have sincere concerns about what's going on in their school in general. Absolutely. But then we have to figure out like, when does sincerity start to move into cynicism, right? And when are sure. there other agendas? Because we know there are those folks too, right? So I, don't, I think we need to find ways, you know, to stand up for all parents' rights, right? Sometimes the, uh, the, the push against this stuff we call DEI or social justice or American history or whatever, you know, gets framed in terms of, you know, parents have a right to, well, all parents have rights. As a matter of fact, parents have diversity in terms of what they want. So how do we figure all sure. that out? And those of us who want children to, um, to grow up being brave enough and smart enough to actually deal with the truth should want the stuff to be taught, but taught properly. You know, and as, as cocky as it sounds, like, you know, you've heard me say this over and over again, I think it can be done. I've experienced it being done. We just need to keep doing it more and more. We need to bring it to scale, I guess, because I agree that it's not always done as well as it should be done. Can I ask you a question? Let's, let's, I sometimes like to do this because race is such a charged one and not that gender isn't, but if we switch the frame from systemic, um, you know, racism to systemic gender bias, would we pretty easily agree that, oh yeah, still happening in our country, sadly. Maybe not in all places. Doesn't mean that women haven't made advances, but the data is there, the experience is there. There is still systemic gender bias in our country. Agreed? Yeah, I, I agree, but I would actually demand the same in that as well. I want to still go to the specifics and see what, what ex specific example are you talking about and can we interrogate those and mm -hmm. discuss those look at the data rigorously. Um, you know, there's a famous exchange by Jordan Peterson. And I will just say, I'm not a Jordan Peterson guy. Okay. But I think he's, but I think he's an interesting mind. You know, he's, he's a, he's a very, um, he's a, and I, um, and you know, where he, he was on TV with a woman who was citing all these statistics and he just made minced meat out of her. Um, it's a very famous exchange on television. I don't remember the television channel made minced meat out of her because she, because he knew more. And um, and and I'm, it didn't mean that he was right that there's that there's no system. I don't even think he would say that there's no systemic misogyny in this country. I think he probably acknowledged that there is. Or, um, but I, I'm I'm wary of. I get it's at the specifics where I want our kids to have the opportunity to debate and look at different perspectives. Not maybe not the most extreme perspective. You don't need to have the person who denies that it exists at all. But I think, but you need to have the person like, you know, watch the Jordan Peterson debate with the, with the woman and say, well, what did you think of that? I think that would be fascinating for kids to see. I do too, as long as it doesn't end up with kids walking away thinking, well, I guess there isn't, you know, this kind of bias instead of that evidence wasn't as valid as it should be. Because if they right. walk away thinking the other thing, we are in serious trouble. Right. It's, it's, that's where the balancing act is. Bring rigor to the reality. Don't say that a lack of rigor denies the reality. Mm. Because you look around the world and let's just stay on the gender one and you want to ask the question, why aren't there more women in X context, right? And it could be, you know, that it's just coincidence. 
but it's probably a function of some sort of systemic behavior that's happening that we just need to nail down and correct. Right. And it could be that women are different than men in some ways. Oh, careful. I mean, I'm, 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 no, but I, I, I think women, I mean, I'm, in ways that causes them to justifiably show up less in places of power and representation. No, it, no, it depends. No, I mean, it depends what the, what field you're talking about. There are, there, there are fields that men are underrepresented in too. I, I agree that most of those fields are not as well paid and you could argue that, but it's not just that. I mean, w women flock to certain kinds of fields more than men do. And, and, and I, I have to be able to say that Carlos, because of course because you do, I, I have to be able to make that face too, but that's okay. Right, right. <laughs> what I'm saying is that, right. But what I'm saying is like, we know a lot about biology about about especially when it comes to male and female differences there are there are there are and and again i don't that doesn't mean that there's no systemic misogyny right there, there the, those two things don't have to be mutually exclusive but it can be that 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 women that women are different in, in certain respects that drives into different kinds of professions not on, on the whole but in but among certain but among women at large in other words does it yes of course there are women who are going to be astronauts and mathematicians and everything else but there are also there are there are also women who are there may be fewer women who want to do that than there are men and that may be that may be very much a function of socialization right and circumstance and have very little and this is where i fall to do with what we call biology i worry a whole I, lot about essentializing attributes to these social identity groups that we talk about. It also okay. may be, and by maybe I mean it is, identified <laughs> people are socialized to think about leadership in a certain way or who should be in right. certain positions in a certain way. And that leads to access for some people more than others. Like, again, we know this, right? It happens in the way we look at resumes. Right. We, we also know as much about the biology as we do all those things that you just mentioned. Okay. These are, there are more, in other words, what I'm saying is that these factors are not mutually exclusive from each other. We it can be the case that women are socialized and men are socialized in certain ways. I think that is absolutely true. Yeah. That there's systemic misogyny. In other words, there are men simply trying to keep women out of certain areas. I think that's true. And it is also can be true that women are and men are are on on average different from each other in certain ways because of their biological makeup. And and there's and there's there's as much evidence to suggest that then there is any systemic argument you can make. Well, and, that, what you just said is either true or not. We'd have to do the data crunch. It doesn't mean I disagree with you, but I just want to say that. So I want to do two right. things now before time runs out. Wait, wait, Carlos, one if is, I may. I know, it's actually one of the things I want to hear from you, Jen, because- I was going to say, I'm the woman in the- Yes, and I'm the president of women. And I'm like- Okay, 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 go ahead. I kept on going, hey, wait, wait, you got a woman in the room here. You know, I, I, I want to say on this point, I do uh, agree with David in the sense that I do feel, and, and you're right, we don't have the studies out here in front of us. You know, who does a good job with these studies is Will Riley does a good job at this study. But I do think that women are out of the workplace often more frequently than men for reasons that we choose to do. Now, where there might be something systemic that I think could be corrected for is when we're out of the workplace, when we are caring for children, that there might be some financial or monetary um, compensation for that or some other way that we might be able to stay in the game. But for mothers like myself, who I chose, I wanted to be there. I did not want to go right back to work. That was important to me. That was a choice that I made. And I know that that affected my earning potential. And I look back and honestly, I've not been... I can, where I've been discriminated against professionally, it's been the opposite. I was giving a, I was given a privilege that I probably didn't deserve to make a quota. And, yeah, and that happens too individually, but um, statistically on average, we know what happens. And Jen, I, I think you're a um, very generous, you know, sort of um, example of the way it worked for you is generous and it speaks within a certain system of work life, right? The way we do work isn't built for women identified people and the ways that we ask them to move through society. That's not written in stone, right? It actually accommodates a certain type of human being, right? Who's been socialized a certain way. 
that's why it's hard for women identified people to sometimes do this thing that takes them out of the, the workplace. It's not that they're not doing work, they're just not doing work in that other system. And then we say that that's the choice that they make. It's a choice that they make within a structure that we have built to accommodate certain people, right? And we could change that, it wouldn't be easy, but we have to be able to imagine outside of that because that's a system too. I'm not saying it's intentionally harming anybody, but it does have this effect, right? That it's not as good for certain people whose lives and rhythms and ways of moving through the world and some of our expectations of what they're gonna do for society don't match up so well with the way we built work life. That's all. Right. Yeah, I, 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 you know, as I said, with so many of these things, I, th I feel like you're, it's, it's partially right. Um, and, um, and partially, you know, we have, we have an economy, the economy is a market economy. It, it, it rewards certain kinds of work more than it does other kinds of work. And um, it creates sort of patterns in work in and of itself. In other words, um, you know, people who- That's exactly right. It's a system. Right. right. It is. A, it is a system that, and and it may be that um, that look. I, you know, let's go back to this ADD example for a second with my kids and how the system favors it. On the one hand, my kids or I, when I was a growing up who had ADD, I understand that we are that that the system should do more to accommodate us. On the other hand, I realize that it's there's always going to be a system. In other words, systems. When you bring people together in a large scale, you have to have some baseline of operation. You can't, there's not an infinite ability for the system to provide for my kids' needs. They can do better. It can be more flexible. It can be more inclusive, but it's not infinite. And so, so there I have to say, okay, to my kids, you have a responsibility of meeting the system's needs. I'll do my best for you to make sure you get a fair shake. But you are in a system and you're always going to be in a system. And that, and because the system has to exist, we, it's not going to go away and it's not going to become infinitely inclusive. So that's where I think there's a tension there and um, where we, we have to, yes, systems should be flexible, but people have to be flexible too. Um, and, and are we building enough resilience in our kid to, kids to understand that no matter how DEI they get, they're going to need to be, they're going to need to accommodate themselves to realities that are outside themselves and, and, and expect certain things of people. Yeah, I think, you know, David, as long as there's a, a mutual agreement around that, you know, that, you know, all of us are susceptible to falling outside of the, the range of any system that we're in, and we have to work harder yep. or advocate for ourselves or whatever it might be. And those of us who are fortunate enough, you know, privileged enough to actually have some hands-on levers in terms of how those systems work, we're responsible too for keeping an eye on, I hope they are, unintended consequences. And then as you say, trying to be as inclusive as possible. That to exactly. me is always the goal. Right. Uh, before we, we close, I want to get away from systems for a minute because here I want to explain, yeah, I believe in systems. I, I lean towards David's point of view where I don't think that they explain everything. But here's my biggest concern with the way DEI is being practiced is we're not changing the game. For those of us who care a lot about injustice and actually do care about creating the more level playing field, if you will, I'm not sure if you've got like certain terminology that you use for that or more just society, let's just put it that way. I feel that the way we talk about DEI or the way DEI's practice is there's a lot of shaming, there's a lot of blaming, there's a lot of oppressor oppressed narrative that keeps people, I think, locked into this idea of, um, you know, I will be a victim. The system is always going to be, I'm always going to be in the system where I'm going to be a victim. I can't do anything about it. And then up for, you know, minorities and then for primarily white folk, you are the oppressor. It will always be about you. And then and then at the end, what happens is the game just shifts where who was on the bottom become the ones on the top and we're playing the exact same games. And then in the injustice just continues on in a different or in the same way, just different players. And I don't see when it's in practice that we're actually trying to really resolve systemic, if you will. I'll get back to the word systemic, even though I said I was getting away from it. Systemic issues. 
Yeah, a couple of observations. Um, one is it's six o'clock. Um, time flies when I'm talking with my friends. Um, the other is, and I'm being deliberately provocative because I know we, we love each other now. I think we do agree about the system thing. I, I think sometimes you have to, you feel a loyalty to like keep up that line, but I think we're in great agreement. Um, so part three, you know, if you're interested is like, how can this be done in a way that's not a zero sum game, right? You know, where all we're doing is changing places in terms of right. who's guilty, who's innocent, et cetera. And there's been some good writing about that too. Um, and I, you know, obviously I think it can be done. It's not easy, right? But I think it can be right. done. And I think we just have to keep forging towards that, pushing out the stuff that is, you know, not best practice, affirming the stuff that is and keep refining this game. And I actually think that the three of us and you know, folks who are like-minded are in a really good position to keep having these very honest, you know, but super constructive conversations mm -hmm. about how we get there. Because to begin with some of the, I don't know, maybe goofy stuff I said in the beginning, like, that's where the hope of the world is. And if we don't keep doing it, like we're going to stay in trouble. Yeah. So right. thank you, you know, for having the conversation. I just want to end with one sure. one thing. I My thought experiment, which I referred to, yes. would be to get six, forgive the term, uh, mildly woke educators and six more traditional, mildly traditional educators in a room for a week and see if they could fashion a common curriculum around some of the key social studies questions of uh, the origin story of America, perhaps. And I, I've, I've been, someday I'm going to get the money to run this thought experiment in real life and to find the people and see if we can come up with a, a consensus that could then be a new, a, a, um, a third way narrative for American society. So that, that I, looked at 1776 and 1619. I have a question for you, David, um, and you can be honest. So you characterize these two groups as, and you said, you know, maybe not with terminology, but woke on one side and maybe traditional on the other. Where do you put me? Well, I, I would put you on, I would put you on the, you know, the, the 40 yard line of, of the woke <laughs> side. Um, but it's, all, but, but, you know, because. 40 yard line of which one? of the traditionalist side, you know, somebody who, and, and maybe I'm, I'm close to the 40 yard line on the traditionalist side. And, um, and we would, we would, we would, you know, we'd sit together and we would try to, we would sort of hash it out and say, okay. And there might be some places where we just need to split the difference. Okay. And could we come up with a, a narrative that worked or could we say on this, there's more than one opinion, and we're going to cite them both. That's exactly. You know, there's there's a great Jewish uh, tradition of the House of Shammai and the House of Hillel, and they were the two houses of the Jewish people. And they argued about points of law, and, uh, and and there's this great legend that in the end, um, the House of Hillel wins out in God's eyes. Why? Because the House of Hillel not only cited its own arguments, but first cited the House of Shammai in its rulings. And I'm wondering that. If we couldn't create a pedagogy that where where we where we where we cited the differences of opinion and said on this we disagree but but on here on these things we agree and and if that wouldn't be a good way of fashioning a new American narrative that's anyway what, that's what we're doing right here right that's exactly right this is all great precursor <laughs> work the, the 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 field is being tilled right and I am ready when you are let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. I'm going to raise the money for that. All right. I like that. You're, you're gonna... We're also going to have, uh, let's, let's, you know, in a, in a couple months, I would love to have that conversation on how we, how we do it now. Like where it's not the zero sum game, because that's what concerns me. I mean, this, you know, our first podcast talked about, you know, more general topics. This was more about systems, but how we're doing it matters. Yeah, I have to run off um, any minute. I apologize for that. I'd love to stay on. But one of the things that might be worth considering is actually hearing from some folks, maybe some kids, you know, but certainly mm -hmm. some teachers who feel like they've experienced a kind of DEI approach that actually does do it right. right? And I could put you mm -hmm. in touch with some of those people. Um, I don't know if that's sure. a conference or that's something else, but yeah, that might, might be get more a sense than just this. people who actually say, oh, yeah, there's some bad stuff out there, but I've experienced some stuff that actually works. So let's maybe yeah. we could consider that, too. That sounds good. All right. Sounds well, great. until the next time, Carlos. All right. Thank until you. Until the next time. The future Thanks a million. I appreciate it. <laughs> we appreciate you. Likewise.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes to see what each of us is reading. Different news with different views. You can find us at holdmydrinkpodcast.com, all major podcast platforms, and on YouTube. Or subscribe on Substack at truthinbetween.substack.com so you never miss an issue. If you want to join our Discord community, drop us a line. And until next week, may your conversations be constructive and your divisions diminished. Cheers. Cheers.